Welcome to the Grace Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., we gather together at the Malco Theater in Collierville, Tennessee, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith by worshiping God through music, scripture, and a message for our lives. So if you're looking for a church home where you can feel loved and accepted as part of God's family, then come and join us at Grace Hill Church. You can visit our website at gracehill901.com for more information about our services and what we have planned for the upcoming weeks. We look forward to connecting with you. Now here's this week's message. And Hey, I wonder if you would just stay standing for the reading uh, of God's Word this morning. Um, the reading comes from Jeremiah 29 starting in verse four through seven. Prophet Jeremiah writes this, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, I want to uh, welcome you uh, to Grace Hill this morning. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here. It's an honor to have you with us. Uh, if you're tuning in online, uh, I want to say good morning to you as well. Uh, I had several folks this morning throughout the course of the morning text me and just say, hey, we'll be tuning in online today. Uh, we got sick kids at home. We're not feeling good ourselves. And so I want to welcome all of you as well as others who may be uh, tuning in for the first time this morning. Uh, thank you for joining us right here in the movie theater. And we join with you uh, wherever you may find yourself today. Uh, we're continuing our series called Becoming. This is a vision series that uh, we've been in the last few weeks. And uh, if you go back to week one, uh, we kind of laid the groundwork for this vision and and what it entails and the story behind it. Uh, Last week, we talked about the first part of this phrase, we are becoming a community of grace and peace for the good of our city and the fame of Jesus. We talked about the the idea of community and peace. And today, uh, we're going to continue on in that. And and what I want to do is I want to share a quick story of how a a meme that I saw on Facebook um, last summer, early last summer, in a lot of ways became the kind of the foundational kind of idea for a lot of our vision, especially what we're going to talk about today. Um, There was a meme that floated around. You may have seen it. uh, And it simply said this, if you had a friend moving to Memphis, what advice would you give them? And uh, if you've ever gone into the comment section uh, in a, a meme like that, you know that it can be uh, uh, filled with uh, a lot of trolls. Uh, and the comment section in that particular meme was pretty vicious. And as I read through the comment section of this meme, my, honestly, my heart just, it kind of sank. Uh, because I'm from Memphis, I love this county. I love this area. I love our culture. I've seen it grow over the last 10, 15 years. My family uh, moved away from Memphis in about the mid-2000s, and we moved back to Memphis about four and a half, five years later, and we've been here going on 13 years now uh, in April of this year. I I love this city. I love this community. I love the the, uh, suburbs that surround Memphis. And so when I began to read these comments in this meme, my heart just, it broke. 
It's saying to see the fact that there were so many people who had so little hope for our community. And not in a way uh, where I was trying to be a, a pastor or trying to be the spiritual guy, but I hit the share button. And what I put in my post was Jeremiah 29, 7, which we just read it. Pray, um, seek the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. And as I begin to ponder that and think about that verse, that's really been a, 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 a kind of one of those key verses I come back to in my own life for many years. I just begin to think, what would happen if a church adopted that idea into who it was? What if a church could center a lot of its ministry around seeking the good of the city? And that's where the phrase in our vision statement, uh, for the good of our city, came from. And so I want you to know this, is that when, when I talk about the idea of for our city, the good of our city, what I mean by that is wherever you find yourself. We have people in our church that live in Fayette County and Rossville. We have people that come from uh, uh, East Memphis and kind of pressing over into Midtown. Uh, Joe and his family live out in Millington. My family lives in Collierville. Some of you folks, you live in North Mississippi. I mean, we're kind of spread out all over the place. So when we say for the good of our city, not only is where we live, uh, we want to believe that for our church, but also where you work and where you play. There are many of you who live in Carville and work downtown. Some of you live in East Memphis and you work in Fayette County. Wherever you find yourself, we as followers of Jesus want to be for the good of our city. And here's why. Let me, let me kind of lay the groundwork for where we're, where we're walking through today is this, is that as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've experienced spiritual renewal in your life. The, the challenge is, is here in America, we have so over-personalized or over-individualized our faith that we begin to think, well, this is just Jesus and me. It's just, it's just Jesus and me, and you know everything else around me is fine, but it's Jesus and me. Many of us uh, in the in the in America in the U.S. here in the West, uh, we can actually see our faith just stopping in our hearts. That's it. Doesn't have any effect on the people and the places around me. And if you listen to the stories of those who find themselves, as we talked about the first Sunday in this series, the bored, the bitter, and the broken, that's been a major conflict for a lot of those voices who find themselves in that spot. Is that as followers of Jesus, our faith becomes individualized. And if it does go beyond us, it gets often politicized instead of affecting the communities around us because of the spiritual renewal that we have experienced in our own lives, it begins to then shape a picture of social renewal as we go and we live our lives. And this is a major gap that we've got to address here in America, the churches in America, if we're going to reach uh, the bored and the bitter and the broken and become a community of grace and peace for the good of our city 
and the fame of Jesus. And the early church understood this. The early church got this. They, they adopted this. They adapted this. They lived it out. I'm not even for sure it was strategic. I just wonder if it was just an overflow because of what they experienced in the, in the goodness of God. See, what happened in the early church is this, is that the gospel so deeply changed the lives of those in the early church that social renewal began to happen everywhere they went. It just happened. The, the, the spiritual renewal that took place in the hearts and in the lives of the people in the early church experienced social renewal everywhere they went. They cared about their cities, and they cared about the people that made up those cities. Pastor and theologian Tim Keller spoke to this a few years ago when he summed it up so well. And he highlighted five areas, five signs of social renewal in the early church and, and, and how vastly different it was than the dominant culture at the time. The first one was this, is that uh, the early church, part of the social re renewal they began to experience is they began to heal the racial divide. Um, but they began to heal the racial divide. We talked about that last week. There's no Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. We've all been united as one in Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul wrote about that, that the dividing wall of hostility, which was a literal wall around the temple, it was a literal division that happened. Paul wrote, that doesn't exist anymore. Jews and Gentiles can come together and worship and fellowship. Uh, it was very multi-ethnic. If you look at Acts, uh, the beginning of Acts, and you see uh, Pentecost, uh, every tribe, nation, you know, there's just this beautiful picture. They begin to heal the racial divide because of the spiritual renewal that they experienced in their life. Uh, the second one that we see in the early church, and historians uh, mark this a little bit more maybe than Scripture does, but historians note that the early church was radically pro-life. They began to not only care for, uh, uh, for the uh, unborn, but they actually began to take in those who were discarded. Uh, there was this um, tragic um, moment in, early in, in the first century where um, people were discarding uh, babies who were girls. They didn't want them. And the early church looked and said, this is a problem. We've got to do something. And they began to take these young girls in, these babies, these infants that were being discarded. They began to take in the lame and the sick and the deformed and care and love them. This was radically different than what the social context was at the time. The, the third area that Keller notes was this uh, shift in the ethics of human sexuality. The idea of um, uh, sexual integrity, the idea of a, of a woman not being viewed just as property, but as an image bearer of God, and as it relates to men in this community, how they looked and treated uh, the women in this community, there was a, a shift in the ethics surrounding human sexuality. The way that men and women became committed to one another in a culture where there were literal temples built up the street where you could go and buy a prostitute 24-7. The early church, because of the spiritual renewal, there began to be a social re renewal that happened around the idea of human sexuality. The fourth area is this, is that there was a radical uh, priority of caring for the poor. 
caring for the poor and the vulnerable in their communities. Acts 2, you see that, that, that people begin to sell things. They begin to sell property. They begin to sell possessions to meet the needs of those who are less fortunate. We see James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing in the end of James chapter 1, and he says, hey, this is true religion. True religion is caring for the widows and the orphans, which was code for society's most vulnerable. And the spiritual renewal that the early church had experienced in their own life began to affect the way that they lived so much. They began to embrace a, a radical priority to care for the poor and the vulnerable in their, in their midst and in their society. And the other thing that emerged from this, from the spiritual renewal that took place that then began to change society around them was this, is they had a non-retaliatory culture. You can see how Paul, as he moved through his missionary journeys, and even sometimes when he would be misunderstood and there would be chaos that would ensue, there would not be retaliation from the early church. Jesus makes this very, very clear when he's arrested in the garden and, and one of his disciples goes to grab a sword and begins to cut the, the ear off of one of the soldiers who had come, one of the people who had come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus put a stop to that. This is not the way of the kingdom. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. The early church embraced a non-retaliatory culture because of the spiritual renewal they had experienced in their own life. So if we are going to be for the good of our city, there's three postures I feel like we must embrace in order to do that. And I want to walk us through each of those three postures briefly this moment, this morning. The first one is this. It's a posture of exile. Here in this Jeremiah text, we see this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives. He is exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. You see, the whole context of this text is written to people who found themselves in exile. The apostle Peter understood this idea of exile as well there in the New Testament. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. This, the, uh, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who knows? I don't know. We don't, we don't have that city maybe anymore. I've not visited it. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you, first, you, you have obeyed him and have, not, and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more grace and peace. And then in uh, chapter 2, he says this, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And you may be saying, well, give me uh, a couple of definitions of exile. Let me, let me walk you through when we say exile. This is kind of the idea that we mean here. Um, one writer says this, is that exile is the experience knowing, uh, 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 knowing one is an alien. 
and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. Wendy Everett and Peter Peter Wagstaff said this, a sense of exile or alienation may result from the individual who is marginalized, cast adrift by the inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. Another writer said this, being an exile is being an outcast within one's own country. And so as followers of Jesus in the 901 or the 662 for my North Mississippi friends, what is our response to a sense of feeling in exile? It's the same question that those who were living at the time that Jeremiah 29 was written. It's the same question they were asking. Okay, well, if we're exiles, if if we look around and we go, this place doesn't feel like home. I don't identify with a lot of the majority of the culture around me. Then as followers of Jesus, what's our response? I think our response today is the same response that God gave the people in exile in Jeremiah 29. Listen to what he says. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work. I love that word that is in there in this text. And work. It's hard work being an exile. And it's hard work being an exile as a Christ follower. But God's word here says, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord. Work and pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. So if I had to summarize what having this posture of exile to be for the good of our city would mean, it would kind of sound something like this. A posture of exile means we don't disparage our city because it may not feel like home. It means we work for its good as if it is. That's what having a posture of exile for the good of our city means. We look around and we see values and culture running counter uh, to ours, hopefully. And a posture of exile towards a very unfamiliar culture. And if you look at the story of the people of God in the Old Testament, it was often, and don't miss this, it was often in exile when they came back to a passion for God. And it was when they returned home, a familiar culture, that they often fell into rebellion and disobedience. So not only embracing a posture of exile does it have significant implications for us uh, seeking the good of our city, but embracing a posture of exile in 2023 in your life has significant implications for your own personal discipleship to Jesus. This is an opportunity as you look out among in the culture and you go, I don't understand. I don't get it. This doesn't make sense to me. It is an opportunity for you to step into discipleship to Jesus 
maybe in a more and greater way than you ever have. This is, this is the power of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that prayer is implying something is taking place in heaven that is not taking place here on earth, and God, we are asking to close that gap. We are asking to get a sense and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and an experience of heaven here on earth as your will is done first through your people and then exercised out in through our society. So that's the first posture, a posture of exile. But the second posture that I believe we must have if we're going to be for the good of our city is this, is a posture of mercy. A posture of mercy. And you say, well, what does mercy mean? Mercy in this context, it's a picture. I, I heard somebody say this a few weeks ago. Uh, the picture of mercy as we posture ourselves towards the good of our city is this. It's a picture of um, bandaging someone's wounds. That, that's the picture of mercy uh, and a posture of mercy that we want to have towards our community, our city. And bandaging up their wounds. Jesus told a parable, and, and we simply call the parable now, it's in our Bibles with the big heading above it that just says a good Samaritan. But, but it was simply about a passerby who found someone in a ditch hurt and wounded. Listen to just a little snippet of the story that Jesus told. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And then Jesus poses a question back to the person that he was encountering here in this moment. He says, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. If we are going to be for the good of our city as a church, we not only have to have a posture of exile, but we must embrace a posture of mercy. And let me try to kind of, kind of contextualize this story for you just a minute and drop it into maybe kind of our imaginations here in 2023 for a moment. You see, the Samaritan did not need to know the hurt person's backstory. The, the Samaritan didn't need to know how they ended up in the ditch. This good Samaritan who showed mercy to this person who had been hurt and wounded just saw someone hurting and moved into a posture of mercy, bandaging the wounds of the person that was hurting. This is what a posture of mercy looks like. There was a, a situation that happened a couple of years ago that rocked our nation. And I had not, at the time, I had, I had not formulated enough of my thinking around this idea of mercy in this way. But I remember teaching this text 
trying to help our church form their thinking around how do we respond to people that are hurting and broken in this world. And I'll never forget it. The, the, the whole idea was mercy and compassion. And I think I even in, the, in that day, I used a little bit of the idea of we don't have to know everybody's story of how they got into the ditch. We just need to know that they're hurting and broken. And if we can pray for them, meet their needs, whatever it may be, that's how we respond. And man, that week I had somebody take me to lunch and they just read me the list of all the hypotheticals that were surrounding this story. And how we should, as Christians, and I just, I, I remember looking at the individual and I just said, how does it jive with the story of the Good Samaritan? That's the picture of mercy that Jesus wants for our lives. Jesus even said, go and do the same. The Old Testament prophets were deeply committed to this idea of mercy as well. The prophet Micah writes this in, in Micah 6, verse 8. He says this, Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy. Not just to do mercy, but to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. This is why I love what we do with our school partners. If, if you want to get a picture of what mercy looks like in our church right now, it, it is uh, the, the, a ministry of mercy that we have with our school partnerships. And many times it may not be physically bandaging the wounds of someone who is bloody, but it is many times coming in and providing relief, care, for people of those who are hurting. Sometimes it's supporting teachers through fun activities and just we bring donuts and coffee in just to put a smile on their face. Sometimes it's providing gifts for families in need at Christmas time. Sometimes it's stepping in and being part of a mentor program to try to make a difference in the life of a kid who you might be their lifeline. Every time we find out about an individual in need of mental health care and we set aside those funds to try to help them do that, that is a picture of a ministry of mercy in our church for the good of our city. Every time we help a single mom who needs shelter or find a bed or just give them a dining room table, that is a posture of mercy in our church. And every time you go quietly through your life, many times it's, it's not talked about on social media. Nobody knows about it except you and the other person. Many times when you go, through, go quietly through your life, meeting the needs of people in your neighborhood, just calling to check on the widow across the street, volunteering through a work program for a school or a different organization in our school, that is a posture of mercy for the good of our city. So we see a posture of exile. It's kind of embracing this mindset of a posture of exile. It's almost like this idea like, hey, it's okay that things are not okay. We should sort of expect it. It's okay that we don't feel at home all the time in our culture. It's okay. We're going to work for the good of our city as if it were. We embrace a posture of mercy. 
And then the third posture that I think we have to embrace if we're going to be for the good of our city is a posture of justice. Now, if mercy is bandaging the wounds, if it, the picture there is bandaging the wounds of someone who's hurting, justice is often a picture of actually preventing someone from being wounded, maybe preventing someone from being wounded again. In Acts 6, a, a certain group of widows were being overlooked in a uh, temple program. And, and this temple program, what they did was they simply distributed food. They distributed food to widows and to those who were vulnerable in need. So if these widows were being overlooked and this program was for widows, what was going on? Well, Acts 6 gives us a picture of this. Acts 6, 1 through 3 says this. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows, the Greek-speaking widows, were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12, the early leaders of the church, the 12 called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God not running a food program. And so brothers select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom and will give them this responsibility. Here's what I want you to know. If you've been around church culture a long time, deacons were birthed out of a need for justice. See, what was happening is these Jewish women who had married Greek-speaking men and many of them moved off into Greek uh, uh, prov provinces, when they would become widows, they would move back into the Jewish communities because Jewish communities were very, very, uh, they prioritized caring for the weak and the vulnerable in their communities. And so there was a food program set up at the temple. But these women who had moved off and now moved back home were being discriminated against for no other reason than the fact that they had at one time married a Greek-speaking man. And the early church leaders said, no. This was not a program that the early church started, mind you. This was, a, this was a program operating out of the temple. And they said, we're putting a stop to this. These widows are supposed to get food. These widows are supposed to be helped. We're going to see to it that they do. They stopped. They stepped into the way, stopped the moment of someone else being hurt. Again, the Old Testament prophets were really, really clear about God's expectations about justice. And, and let me say this. I know that the word justice in our society right now, these last few years especially, the idea of social justice, and you bring that into a church, it has all kind of connotations. I just want you to know this is not a construct of modern thinking. It's, it's not a political thing in its origins. God is very committed to justice. He is very committed to the church, especially God's people, taking care of those who find themselves experiencing injustice. And there was in the Old Testament severe judgment when the community forgot about this. Look at this text in Amos chapter five. It says this, I hate 
all of your show and pretense. This is the Lord speaking. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. He's saying, I will not accept your worship. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. You see, in the Bible, the idea of righteous living and justice go hand in hand. And if you think, well, this is just a, a foreshadowing of Jesus and what he was going to come do, and, and this is just all spiritual, let's back up. Let, let's, let's, take, let's go whoop, you know, to the context and look and see what came before this. Verse 10, how you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, you build beautiful stone houses. You will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in courts. So those who are smart... Keep their mouths shut, for it is an evil time. And God's command to them was the text we just read. I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And I believe these three postures, a posture of exile, a posture of mercy, and a posture of justice enable us to be for the good of our city. And we want to expand the efforts that we've already begun as a church. We want to expand those efforts throughout 2023. Practically speaking, we, um, we want to begin to the process, which is a long process, but we want to begin the process of cultivating one new school partnership this year. We think there is need to expand this work. We know how to do it. Jessica does an incredible job uh, leading in this area. And so both practically and strategically, we feel like God is calling us to expand this area of a lot of what I would just call a posture of mercy uh, to our city, to our communities. But also this year, we want to identify two to three new city partnerships. This has never been a step that we've really taken to formalize. We've had some informal partnerships with organizations like Neighborhood Christian Center in the past, Agape. We've done their food drive several years in a row. But, but this year, we want to take the step to identify two to three new city partnerships, formalize those partnerships. And these will be strategic ways we can be more involved in these postures that we need to embrace to be for the good of our city. And, and this effort, this is not just a, 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 a kind of a half-baked effort. This effort has been going on since last summer. We began to communicate with you early last summer about the idea that we had actually set aside $300,000 of the resources that God has given us for community outreach, for community ministry, to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. But we don't want that effort to just be funded. We want our church family to come together with our time to support whatever this work may be by being involved and embracing these postures of exile, 
mercy, and justice. And you say, well, what are those partnerships? What's it going to look like? Well, we're developing the framework for this now. The, the big question we have to ask is this, is how do, we, how do we evaluate these partnerships? If you've ever been involved in any kind of ministry like this, you know that the needs always out, uh, outpace the resources that you have. So we've got, to be, uh, we've got to search the Lord, ask the Lord for wisdom in this area to guide us and open up uh, some opportunities and direct our steps in these ways. But, but, but I think there's, there's five areas that I think that we should begin to pray about and ask the Lord for wisdom as we embrace a posture of exile, mercy, and justice. The first one is this is church planning. We know that more churches reach more people. And this year, it's estimated, I heard this the other day, and it was staggering, up to 10,000 churches in America will close their doors. Jesus said, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And I just keep asking myself and praying, God, how could we step into as a church to be for the good of our city by either supporting existing church plants or by starting new ones ourselves. The second one, and I'm just I'm putting these on your radar to kind of come along into the process and, and just join with us together in this. The second one is this, is child homelessness. Memphis Shelby County Schools just put out a report recently that said that there are approximately 1,300 children in our county who are homeless at this moment. 1,300. 1,300 kids in our backyard, our county, who don't know where they're going to sleep tonight maybe. They don't have an address, which means they can't get on the bus to get to school tomorrow. And if they're homeless, you know this, if you know anything about kind of the domino effects that happen with homelessness, uh, if they're homeless, more than likely, they don't have stable transportation to even get a ride to get to school. And the social effects of not having proper education, the dominoes just keep falling. And so this, this, is, this is a thing. And I just keep praying, God, could, could we maybe take part in having a posture of exile, mercy, and justice to be for the good of our city in this area? Another area that uh, I've become aware of over the last year is the idea of food insecurity for kids. According to Feeding America, which is a, a national hunger relief organization, you can go on their website and put in our county and see these, these statistics, 27% of children in Shelby County were considered food insecure within the last three years. That equates to, that equates to almost 65,000 kids in Shelby County at this moment may not know where their next meal's coming from. And there's a lot of talk in our culture and society today about rights, what we have a right to, I'm just deeply convinced that every kid has a right to know where their next meal is coming from, that they shouldn't go hungry. So I keep asking the Lord, Lord, is, is there some, 65,000 kids, can, could we, maybe could we make like a little dent in that somewhere? I don't know. 
The fourth one is this, and I want to be sensitive when I talk about this because one of the statistics I'm going to say points to it. But I keep asking the Lord, God, how could we support moms navigating a pregnancy crisis? We have a cultural moment on our hands that I think demands a response from the local church. Statistics show that one in four women in America will have an abortion by the time they are 45 years old. If you want to talk about a posture of mercy and justice for the good of our city, this is a situation that touches every corner of every local church in our community. Both inside and outside the church. And I've just been asking the Lord, Lord, it, is there some way that we might could be involved? We've already begun to have those conversations. We took some steps last summer to begin to do some investigating into what that would look like. God's given us a vision now to be able to kind of align our resources and our vision with opportunities. But I just keep thinking, Lord, is there some way that we can make a difference here for the good of our city? And the fifth one is this, something we aren't even aware of at the moment. Maybe that will be, in, maybe that will actually be the place where we begin. The Holy Spirit will light that path for us and provide clarity for us to an opportunity we're not even aware of right now that makes so much sense for us as a church. So I want to invite you into this. I want to invite you into being for the good of our city. Last week, I talked about inviting you into taking the step to be a part of community, that we can't have unity as a church without community. Today, I want to invite you into taking a step to be part of being for the good of our city. And that is this, is I want to hear your ideas. You want to be involved in the conversation and the efforts? Good. I want to know about it. I want you to email our staff team. Everybody on our staff team gets this info at gracehill901.com email. I want you to email us at info at gracehill901.com. Just put in the subject line for the good of our city and just say, hey, I want to be involved. Hey, I got this idea. Hey, I have this friend that runs this nonprofit. I want to hear what the Lord might already be stirring in your heart in our church that could bring us to a place where we say, we're going to embrace a posture of mercy, uh, exile, and justice in this area. And it might come from you. So I want to invite you to step into that as we embrace this vision. Here's the last thing. It's to be for the good of our city, a posture of exile, mercy, and justice. Means we often help people who can give us nothing in return. I say, man, that's not fair. People taking our resources and they can't give us anything in return. Investing resources and time and, and people into people who may never participate in our church, may never uh, 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 give back to our church. People who can give us nothing in return that doesn't feel fair. And here's what I want to say to you, friend. That is exactly what Jesus has done for you. 
Because Jesus took on a posture of exile, humbled himself, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, and stepped out of heaven and came into earth to love you and demonstrate his love to people who did not understand him and rejected him, even as he went to the cross. Jesus took on a posture of mercy for yours and for my life. First Peter 2.10 says this, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. And Jesus took on a posture of justice. Our lives were sentenced to a life separated from God. And Jesus stepped in between sin and death and said, no more. I will take that upon myself so they do not have to experience it. He put a stop to that and embraced a posture of exile, mercy, and justice. So the question is, is if we have experienced that in our own lives, could we not embrace that posture in our own and demonstrate that posture to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to our communities who don't, do not know? Could we embrace this and become for the good of our city? I think we can. But it has to come in light of what Jesus has done for us.